This is a Founding Media Podcast. Welcome to the Pack and Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Axel Babbitt. Today, we're sitting down with Austin Institution Master, Scott Jensen. He was one of the co-founders of legendary Stubbs Barbecue Sauce and the accompanying Stubbs music venue and restaurant. Scott, or as I called him, the OG hipster cowboy, is one of the original CPG Texas industry leaders who was here at the beginning of the Texas CPG boom. I really enjoyed having this talk with Scott. We got into the details of his career, what he is doing now with Rhythm Superfoods, and what makes Austin so special for foodies and creatives alike. Here's our conversation. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Packing Taste. Today with us, we have Scott Jensen, the CEO and co-founder of Rhythm Superfoods, a very cool, healthy snack company based out of Austin, Texas. Thank you for joining us, Scott. Thank you for inviting me. Can't wait to have this little chat. Yeah, I've been very excited. I know our friend uh, Kirsten, Kirsten, sorry, got us uh, together, but you are a legend here in Austin, so I'm very honored to have you on here, and I'm sure we'll we'll be able to chit-chat a little bit about um, um, Velocity and Superfoods and how brands kick off, kick off in Austin, but mainly where I want to start is kind of some background, where you're from, how you got started. Um, are you a Texan? Are you an Austinite? Um, I've been here for... 25 years so as long as you know most other people have been but uh, or longer uh, but I, I I was born in the East Coast in Connecticut I lived there for three or four years um, father and mother and sister and I moved to Fort Lauderdale I was there for like six or seven years um, and then he he's kind of moving around from one bank job to another bank job um, and uh, took over the leadership of another bank up in New Hampshire. So we moved from uh, Fort Lauderdale up into New Hampshire. Um, but I really loved the warmth and was, you know, moved when I was like, you know, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old in January to New Hampshire. So I was like, you know, let me try to find a way back down to warmth. So, so when it came to going to uh, college, I sought out you know, all the universities here in Texas and Florida and ended up at SMU in Dallas. Nice. And w- what did you study there? Um, I uh, got a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and a Bachelor of Arts in Business Communication. So kind of, you know, always influential to consumer kind of focus. I yeah, like marketing. Like. Yeah, I loved marketing, loved business. And so... Uh, it took me an extra year at SMU in order to make that happen, but uh, did get it done. With the, the the victory lap. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And psycho- you, did you always have an interest in like, because psycholo- when I think of psychology plus business, I think of like behavior, uh, human behavior and, and consumer behavior, really. Was that something that always like sparked your interest, how to like turn things on in people's brains? Yeah. I mean, I was... At a very young age, I was always buying stuff and selling it at school, whether it was a candy that people couldn't get or fireworks that were illegal in one state, but we happened to drive through another state. So there was always kind of this weird 
like dynamic of understanding what people wanted and couldn't get. Um, I, I, I spent my youth doing that, sometimes selling things that I shouldn't have and got in trouble with, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, like what kind of things? Just fireworks? Fireworks. Is, yeah, fireworks is, is the big one. Oh, okay. <laughs> they don't really like that in Florida at the time. So you're like, oh, my God. Yeah. And my mom and dad didn't really know I was doing that. I was stealing their, their fireworks that they would buy when we would drive down I-95 from Connecticut and stop in South Carolina and load up with some fireworks. And then I'm stealing them and selling them for a dollar a pack in school. Oh, nice. So you always had some sort of an entrepreneurial spirit in you. Yeah. Kind of hustling, kind of selling always, some, always, some fireworks. Yeah. And then, so when did you start having interest towards food? And well, I guess, uh, was that also in college? I, um, I was enamored with advertising agencies. Um, when I kind of added uh, at SMU this second degree of business communications, it's basically marketing, you know, advertising, PR, that kind of stuff. Um, I really, you know, got enamored with like the David Ogilvy's and the Leo Burnett and the, the classic 1950s, 60s, 70s. Um, they were studying psychology and using that that kind of language of understanding human behavior to create advertising to present consumer products. And so when I came out of uh, SMU, I got the job at what was then called the Bloom Agency, um, number one or number two largest ad agency in, in Texas at the time. It was eventually purchased by Publicis. But I got to work on stuff like uh, Kern's Nectars and what was called Rainbow Bread. Campbell Taggart was the company. Big, big bakery company, Grant's Farm Bread, uh, Church's Fried Chicken, um, Carnation, um, Contadina Pasta. And, and a lot of the, the advertising accounts that that agency had were consumer products. And at some point, being there for almost two years, I wanted to be a bigger part of it than just the advertising. So I wanted to work at, you know, a major corporation and see if I could do more than just the advertising part of it. So decided to go get my MBA and ended up uh, graduating from NYU in New York with my MBA there. So you you went back to the East Coast. Yeah. I was Uh, calling you, huh? Yeah. And, um, you know... uh, for many reasons, it was an outstanding school, um, and uh, um, but in the end, when I was up in New York, I really missed Texas. Um, I missed uh, my friends down here. I had made some really deep relationships and good friends. So I was trying to figure out after um, after I got out of uh, my MBA, I started working for a company called James River Corporation. I think it's now part of International Paper, um, but. They were like they were like a seven or eight billion dollar paper company, like Dixie cups and Dixie plates, Northern bathroom tissue, brawny paper towel, um, so stuff like that. Um, and I was working on the Dixie cups and Dixie plates uh, business, and so that kind of elevated me. Like I was working with the ad agencies to do some, you know, marketing, but also you know traveling to manufacturing locations to work with our manufacturers and R and D. So kind of like became more of the the hub of the wheel versus the spoke. Yeah. And it's pretty satisfying. But um, and, and sorry to interrupt, but what, what did you study? Is there a specific focus for your MBA? Did you do more? Uh, yeah, you know, you don't or? do, um, and maybe they've changed it now, but um, there was no, like, major. Um, you, 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 it was just MBA. You had an emphasis. And okay, so, that's, the, yes. and, and maybe they change it now. I don't know what they call it now, but um, um, so you would call it, 
computer science now, but working with computers. Mm -hmm. And so back then, I mean, I remember like the inter uh, so I'd go to the computer lab and there was a friend of mine uh, from Tel Aviv and, and he had a friend uh, who was in Tel Aviv at the university and the beginnings of the internet was peer to peer communication. You could get online mm -hmm. with, you know, this dial up modem um, and, <laughs> and you could type and communicate with your friend without having to pay for a long distance call. And so that became the, the network of the internet. But that's how, I mean, to just give perspective, <laughs> this is only, you know, 25 years ago or, or yeah, 30 years ago, but that's the beginning of the internet. So if you think of computer science back then and looking at what we would do, it's nothing like today. <laughs> We're yeah. talking like, you know, when the cavemen first decided that they could make a wheel out of a round stone. Yeah. I remember when um, when we played computer games at my parents' house, we still had dial-up, so we'd hear the that beautiful beep, sound. Beep, yeah. Beep. <laughs> and every now and then it let, that rings in my head. And now to think, like, I have LTE access on my phone and everything yeah. is just super so fast. fast. Um, and I guess speaking of super... When you moved back to Texas, superfoods still weren't a thing, mm -hmm. um, right? So what, what really, other than the warmth and the beauty of Texas, <laughs> what else called you here? And did you come here with an idea to start something? Yeah, definitely. So <clears throat> actually, I was very happy uh, working at James River Corporation. I was doing fun stuff, exciting stuff, learning all brand new things to me. But I did uh, miss, you know, Texas, quite honestly. And uh, <clears throat> one of my roommates and good friends, <clears throat> where I was getting my MBA, um, my roommate, John Scott, and then my good buddy, uh, Eddie Patterson, we were both kind of transplanted, quote unquote, Texans, because I had spent time in Texas, they were born here. And uh, we had this great idea when one of our friends, uh, this guy named C.B. Stubblefield or Stubb, had called John and said, hey, man, you know, I'm really broke <clears throat> behind on my rent. I need some cash. And so um, we rounded up. I think John was uh, tallying up like $1,400. Um, we all kind of knew Stubb because he had a restaurant here in Austin and everyone had eaten there before, but John was really close to him. So he uh, he kind of pioneered grabbing some cash from friends and relatives and sent him 1400 bucks and said, I hope this helps you out, man. And then... And, and why, why did you guys want to help? Just because he was a friend? He's kind of like the grandfather you never had if okay. your grandfather passed away at an early your early age. Um he was just a great sage, and if you ever come came down to Austin and wanted to eat, like he'd sit down at your table and chat with you for 15 minutes. So I had spent only a couple of times um, previous to that reach out uh, at his restaurant in Austin, and it was really because I was at SMU in Dallas. Yeah. But we came down to Austin four or five times a year to uh, have fun with friends. Um, but I didn't know him that well, but uh, got to know him real well and just fell in love with him as a family member. Um, but that that money that was sent then was reciprocated back by him a few months later. Um, <clears throat> he he countered a countered air freighted a cooler of hot barbecue. So back in the day before 9-11, you could go to the ticket counter at not the Bergstrom Airport, but the Mueller Airport, and you could drop off a package and 
the first available flight to wherever American or whoever would go, it would be there however many hours later. So we went out to LaGuardia and picked up a cooler and another box of barbecue sauce and brought it back and we're like, all right, well, we, we better have a party tonight because there's a lot of barbecue to eat. So he shipped it from here to New York City. New York. Yeah. Okay. So we were still there at the time in New York City and we pretended we cooked it on a hibachi or something and, and had a big party and all of our friends were like, this This is awesome. This is the best barbecue I've ever had. There was no one smoking barbecue in New York City. There was a place called Dallas Barbecue. There was five or six locations, and they were just charcoal grilling chicken, and they called it barbecue. So to bring <laughs> something that's been slow smoked that you've never had before, people were like, what the heck is this? Yeah. This is like the first time you've tried some sort of cultural food that's done excellently. And then the barbecue sauce bottle. So he had, had, he had taken uh, some Jack Daniels uh, bottles from uh, the Continental Club when they were empty, gathered up four or five of six of them, had his buddy Joe Ely on a little Mac computer print out a little label with Stubbs' face on it. And that's what he sent us with these Jack Daniels bottles with <laughs> with his face on it. And that's the light bulb, right? So yeah. we're sitting here and everyone that's trying it is blown away by the flavor of the barbecue sauce. And we're like, okay, let's, let's start a business. Well, took us a couple of years um, and we're still in New York City finishing up my MBA and my partner, John, his law degree, Eddie was working for, for a company there and hitting the streets. <clears throat> but it took us that long to like accurately build a plan of, of a business plan and, and, you know, working with Stubb and people down here to, you know, give him a little bit of money to make some sauce to sell to other small people. But it wasn't like this big company that was going to take off. Yeah. And you, so it was you, John, and Eddie were, you and guys Stubb. met and Stubb, but yeah. you guys... Y'all met in SMU? No. Nope. Um, or y'all met in New York? We had mutual friends in Austin. Um, okay. John and I did. Um, okay. He was really like close friends with uh, our corporate lawyer, David Wood. He was roommates with him at one point down here at UT. So you come down, you hang out, and you suddenly hang out. you're friends. Yeah, yeah. And I was getting my MBA in New York. Uh, John was going to finish his and do an internship uh, on at the New York Stock Exchange. He needed a place to live, and, we, and I needed a roommate for the last semester. Yeah. And so he moved in because he was from Lubbock. Eddie was from Lubbock. Their parents knew each other and connected all three of us up in New York. Okay. And then... <laughs> You guys all had, uh, by this time, you were uh, seasoned students, right, have, yeah. getting MBAs. So you guys knew how to draft a business plan. We did. I'm a hell of a lot better now than I was then. <laughs> well, we still have a copy of that first business plan. It's You guys do? It's pretty light, yeah. Um, I mean, when you're like 26, you know, and maybe you haven't worked at a private equity firm. I mean, they didn't even exist back then, quite honestly. There was no VC or private equity. But like to start a company, um, there wasn't the path that there is right now, the infrastructure of information you can find in, in books and on the internet. And you can find a hundred really good you know, like deal docs business plans yeah. right now. There wasn't any of it. There was no internet. Yeah. I mean, you go to the, you know, the entrepreneur professor at NYU and go, can you help us on this? And so, you know, we did the basics of competition. What's the, you know, what's the whole scalable market? What's our operations plan? 
you know, where's the budget for the next three or four years? And of course, we were going to take over the world. So there was a huge hockey stick of, of revenue. Of course. And then we found out that it was much harder to get on the shelf um, than we assumed. Um, but, you know, when you're that young, you're... You'll take no, and then you walk out the door and go, okay, we'll just come back in three or six months. Um, so the no's came, but we came back and we're persistent. And uh, people um, finally just got tired of saying no to us. And they put our product on the shelf, and then we'd work our asses off to, to make sure it would come off the shelf, whether that was, I'm going to demo, you know, do demonstrations, cooking, whatever, feed your entire store five times, mm-hmm. every single store you have that we can get to. We used to have this old bus uh, in the first three or four years. It was um, old Bluebird school bus that was painted red, white, and blue, just like the, the flag of Texas. Um, and uh, and we would travel, to like we were in Florida for three months with that bus, just doing demos at Publix, because Publix had just let us get into their stores. And we're like, we got to make it happen. So getting that velocity was just tenacity. Yeah. Like, there was plenty of other multinational, multi-billion dollar companies that had barbecue sauce on the shelf, much cheaper than us. Uh, and there were some local guys, not a lot of them. Like, like you look at barbecue sauce right now and every region's got 25 local brands that are trying to be the next stubs, I guess. Um, but they, it wasn't as competitive then as, as it is right now. But we were tenacious and it needed that to happen. You have to have this like, I'm not going to fail kind of attitude because brick walls are being built to keep you from succeeding at all times. Yeah, uh, totally agree. And I mean, so so you guys moved back to Austin. Mm-hmm. You guys were uh, all in the 20-somethings, yeah. full of energy, full of passion, it sounds yeah. like. And you were getting... Was there was there like a barbecue spark or a barbecue trend go- happening at the time? Or was it like... Damn, there was no access to really good barbecue sauce in other states. Like it sounded like when you guys had that party in New York, people were like, "Oh, this is what real barbecue is. It's not just op- uh, yeah. uh, chicken over coal." You know, um, when access, when national access starts happening to something that's great, it doesn't have to be barbecue. But like we in Texas. You know, you got to Lockhart or some of the other cities that have their famous old places. Austin has its its famous old places. Like, those great places have been around forever. But, like, it's hard to think back um, pre-internet and pre-500 channels of cable or satellite TV. Because the food network and the food TV and the this food and that food and the celebration of food that is non-existent. Maybe there was, you know... Uh, you know, couple of magazines that were very highbrow. They weren't celebrating the best barbecue in America. They were celebrating the new chef, you know, sauce that that is, you know, put on your braised beef wellington. And I'm just making that up, but like that's kind of where the 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 world of culinary uh, was. But when you get broader and you have the ability to have it on the internet and so many channels on, on, on cable that were exploding, they need content. And so content got down to, you know, Guy Fieri's dives, drive-ins and 
whatever that show yeah. is, right? Like, and, and I love that show. I'm just saying, like, you have these gr great little slices that can get very minute in what they're focusing on. And so barbecue became a huge celebration. You find out that, you know, three or four regions of the country are claiming to be the best. That's a good hook editorially. And then you're like, well, why do they think it's the best? Let's let's go investigate. And that's, that's editorial content right there. So we were at a point <clears throat> where... The advancement in um, available uh, information, easier to get curiosity of, like, if you want to learn how to do barbecue back then, you had to go to, like, Barnes & Noble and see if in the food section there was one or two books. You There was no other way to do research. You had to, or get in the car and drive around and interview people. But at the touch of a finger 15 years ago, it's like everything is there for you. Yeah. Okay. And... Kind of switching gears, so you guys started Stubbs Barbecue, did the venue, grew the company to a couple millions of dollars, exited, and that, well, I guess you... The sauce company uh, yeah, yeah. was sold to McCormick. Yeah, yeah. and, and you uh, stepped down from the CEO position before that, and you started... Rhythm. Rhythm. Yep. And so how did that kind of start? Did you, you had left, you wanted to do something else. You had grown stubs to the size you wanted to grow it. How did that all play out? Yeah, I mean, I had been there for a long time. And, um, you know, um, that period of time when you've got investors money and um, like I'm kind of a growth kind of person. And we decided as a board and ownership group that that maybe we wouldn't be spending all of the profits on more growth. So there was there was a a need internally with our shareholder and investor base and ownership and all of us, you know, how how do we plan for the taking some money off the table or, or are we tied up into this forever? And uh, for about the year and a half before that though, um, we were here in Austin and the barbecue sauce was damn near every supermarket chain in the entire country. Maybe we didn't have every store, but the original barbecue sauce was like in 90% of the ACV or all commodity volume number of stores. But we weren't in Whole Foods because the Stubbs original recipes um, were using, you know, a specific, uh, you know, sauce uh, Worcestershire sauce, um, soy sauce base. So the ingredients we were using were five, 55 gallon drums, commercial level. And in some of those ingredients, there was like sulfite or sodium benzoate. Which Think, Whole Foods doesn't allow. Correct. And so we couldn't get in there. And we were just kind of, you know, scratching our head and going, well, I mean, can't we figure out how to make it natural and not change the taste? Because we were you're committed to not changing the recipe, right? Um, you know, on Stubbs, you know, dying last day was, you know, in his way saying, don't ever let anyone mess with my recipe. Um, so we were committed to that. But like, what we didn't know is those same companies we were buying those ingredients from were also making versions of the exact same thing without sulfite or sodium benzoate. We just didn't ask because we didn't know the movement that was going on for natural and organic foods. And, uh, you know, the, the Natural Products Expo West was like 150 exhibitors, not like 2,500 or whatever it is yeah. now. So it was small, yeah. right? Yeah. And But Whole Foods was growing and they were on our radar and they're right here and we, we knew people that worked there and were buyers. 
And so that was one of those things like, well, let's see if we can do it. And we did do it. And the sauce we made was indiscernible. It was the exact same recipe. Um, so that was a successful like I think that was one of the sparks in my head because we we ended up going to the uh, Natural Products Expo. I think the first one we went to because of the timing was Expo East, and that was pretty small, sm smaller than Expo West by the time we got around to it. Um, and I was blown away at the type of companies that were there and the energy there. And then like doing a little bit of research showed me how fast the growth was of this category. The natural category? Yeah, an organic category. and. Just in general, in our segment in barbecue sauce, it's not a grow growth category, right? It's it was a mature category that uh, is going to grow, say, the population growth one to two percent a year, and that's it. So we were growing at much more than that, you know, I don't know, anywhere from eight to fifteen percent a year, but that's stealing market share from someone else. Yeah. Um, but you know, I've been doing that for a while, and the you know our group wanted to uh, slow things down, maybe get dividends and uh, and so we ended up finding a really really good um, leader to come in there and 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 be there for the transition of what eventually resulted in the sale to McCormick so Matt Gase who, who now runs Lantana Foods here in Austin was the guy that came in and I started before I left started you know meeting with various people to see what I wanted to do next and um, got you, you you were thinking I want to do something natural something, exactly yeah something no, no question or? about it yeah I mean yeah. It, it, like it wasn't so much trendy but like I wanted it to be honest and healthy so honest and healthy and what does that mean it means many different things but when I met this gentleman named Keith war um, I was introduced to Keith by um, uh, Clayton Christopher, who uh, about the same time we were selling um, stubs, he maybe it was a year earlier, they had sold uh, this. He and David Smith from uh, High Brew Coffee had sold Sweet Leaf Tea to Nestle Waters. Um, so they were kind of trying to figure out what they were going to do. Uh, Clayton had, you know. Uh, already started uh, the Deep Eddy Vodka Company with Chad Aller here in Austin, uh, and David uh, stayed with um, with the Sweet Leaf Tea Company and Nestle to help them in their transition. I think for about a year, and then he went uh, and did a six month sailboat trip on their sailboat. Um, that sounds beautiful. So they, yeah, I mean, uh, he was he was <laughs> they were working hard to yeah. get the, that company where it was. So um, ended up uh, deciding after I met this guy, Keith War, that it was a perfect opportunity um, to like look at a company in its infancy. He was making these kale chips and I was like, okay, let's, let's see if this product, super, super high nutrition, crunchy, snacky, um, let me send it out to a bunch of people and, and see if it's got legs, you know, brokers, yeah. buyers, you know. So we started shipping out some samples. And, and when you say healthy and I guess, so superfoods, just to take a step back, yeah. superfoods essentially means healthy foods because, or and this is a question. Really good question. Yeah, so like beet chips and kale chips, that just automatically sounds healthier than a normal Lay's potato chip. Is it is it just as simple as this is a vegetable? Well, I guess a potato is a vegetable as well, but this is we don't put any like what what's the main difference there? Yeah, so it's not defined by the FDA. So if you were to talk to the Subway Sandwich Shop Company because they put avocado and call it a superfood on sandwiches, mm -hmm. um, we called ourselves Rhythm Superfoods. 
it's always been kind of a, a slightly moving target of what it is. And that's not necessarily great, but we, uh, I'm not going to try to remember the exact words on it, but we do define what we call it on, on our website um, because we're committed to we're committed to transparency and honesty, and you can't necessarily go out and say that something is a superfood if one person's belief is, oh, it's got more than one gram of sugar. It can't be a superfood. Another person says, no, but it's got 17 grams of fiber. So it is a superfood. So all the definitions change. I worry about the name superfood and, and, and what will happen in the next three, four, five years with that name. So we, we're nervous about it. We don't like that it it never did catch on to have an FDA um, kind of like identification for what it is, but it is our name. That's what we called ourselves. And, and so we're careful about the ingredients and the type of items that we, that we try to make and that they have uh, superior nutrition to the mainstream item that they're competing against. Okay. So, so there's no, there's no real definition that the FDA has no, somewhere no. on their wall. When there's confusion in the marketplace, um, that's when they step in because they want clarity with uh, the consumers, but there is no definition now. And so it's, it's kind of the wild west, whoever wants, if you want to call, you know, uh, you know, a Snickers bar, superfood, you can yeah. make a claim that there's three grams of protein or something like that yeah. on there. And it's got plenty of energy because it's got sugar. So yeah, you, you might by, by consumers be called a fraud, but um, I, I don't call them a fraud because I don't own the definition to it. So yeah, yeah so I, I guess what you guys do is you take this is what superfoods is, and we define it this way. Superfoods yeah. to us means this, correct? Right? Yeah. And yeah, and as and I think transparency there is key because it's like there's no real definition. This is what we think it is. We're showing you. Do you agree? And it yeah. seems like most of your customers agree because they keep buying the chips. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They are. They're totally. A, way healthier option than most of the other chips on uh, in the chip aisle you know, at least everything we make is organic i'm sure there's a percentage of the population that would say you know that must be a superfood then because there's there is confusion in the marketplace but if i gave you a bag of sugar that was organic i think 99% of the people would say oh no it's not a superfood but i guarantee you there's some people that would think it is of course because they're confused by what is non gmo verified mean what is organic mean there's still massive confusion over what it actually means so we just try to be transparent in it and 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 then guide ourselves to kind of the 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 railroad tracks that we start, try to stay in between, and you you won't see a white potato potato chip from us because it's there's there's really no nutrition there. Yeah. So those are the things we stay away from. Yeah, and, and I guess the the way you guys were educating people, because when you started Rhythm Superfoods was a, a buzzword people loved to hear. Um, it was a health being in Austin, like everyone's so healthy, like health conscious here. Um, but the way you were educating the consumers. <clears throat> was through this trans method of transparency, right? It's like it was it, it I'll give a little hitch though. Um, when we first started, we were really only making the kale chips. and um, there was a movement then that raw foods, those being less processed at lower heat, mostly low temperature dehydration. Um, and it is a fact that it allows the enzymes inside the the cellular structure of the vegetable or fruit itself to to live. Um, but the raw foods diet, if you will, it wasn't necessarily like I'm on the raw foods diet to lose weight. It's more like that's what I'm committing myself is to eat more raw foods. Um, we were in a 
we were in the raw food sets of various supermarkets. And it really didn't take off, uh, whether the variety wasn't there or everyone thought that they needed to make a kale chip to be in the segment. There was like nine people, nine companies making kale chips. Um, the raw category just didn't take off. So um, kind of found ourselves a little orphaned early on. Of if that's not going to take off and more stores aren't going to put that in, then why are we raw and, you know, self-reflection and trying to figure out if people aren't adapting to this, um, then we need to make a change. So we took raw off, not because, um, we weren't making the product the exact same way, but, uh, it also could have been confusing in the marketplace and to the FDA. When you start making certain claims, um, there are all kinds of, uh, um, folks out there, um, lawyers that gather consumers to be two or three people that seem to have been confused by something on the package. So we did not want to go through the legal haranguing of the uh, of the the legal trolls that that look for companies that have a claim that could be refuted. And so we asked ourselves, could this be refuted? And we're like, well, it doesn't matter if it's refuted or not. If, if they if that's the claim they want to go after, then you're tied up in a lawsuit whether you're right or wrong. Yeah. And usually you end up settling with them. So. Yeah. And, uh, but even then, I think because there wasn't an exact definition or no real defi- uh, I guess defining point for superfood is let's just be transparent as possible because yeah. that's our evidence, I guess. Yeah. Um, so when, when you guys started Rhythm, you were going from a barbecue sauce. Um, you guys started a barbecue sauce company. Um, we're doing that kind of velocity, which uh, I'm sure it picked up, and it was high velocity by the by the last couple of years. Yeah. But when you geared over to snacks and chips, velocity in that category, not only are you dealing with different buyers, but everything moves a lot quicker. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, how was that like seeing that velocity, and I, I'm assuming seeing smaller numbers with like a bag of chips is way uh, cheaper than a jar of barbecue sauce. Not, uh, not our chips. Not your chips. <laughs> so so how was it like uh, transitioning and dealing with that kind of production or that kind of velocity? Yeah, we, um, we had a very specific situation that I had never um, – ever seen in in my limited years in the food business. But when we first launched the kale chips and started selling them to a couple of Whole Foods regions, uh, and then we got into some HEBs and some more stores. Um, If you think of the supply chain and the manufacturing element of how you have to make the product, if, if someone like Publix wants to put us in 500 or 600 stores, I then have to go to my farmers and say, hey, do you have additional 25 acres of land and can we start tiering that land so that we can get an additional X, you know, number of tons per week in whatever time it takes to grow those seeds? So we're, we're having to think five and six months ahead. And when we hear, you know, when we get a yes from a retailer, um, sometimes, oftentimes it's a six month kind of cycle where they're trying to you know, manage their category. But sometimes you get a yes and they want the product in, in two months 
right? So managing that part of it when you're kind of growing relatively uh, fast is a challenge. Uh, Kale then became its own hero separately. Like, you know, it was on the Kardashian show and all the chefs were cooking and making soups and, you know, they, they tested salads with Kale at McDonald's. And so it had its own like day where it was almost like overhyped. Um, but that overhyping meant that everyone wanted kale chips. So we were chasing production scale. Like there's no contract manufacturers that have the equipment that it takes to make the kale chips. So we had to buy our own equipment. And we were not necessarily interested in getting at that point into our own self-manufacturing. We wanted to focus on the sales and marketing. So we did find partners along the way that would allow us to bring and buy our own equipment and bring it into their co-packing facilities. And they manage the raw material procurement, the food safety, the the, the labor, the people that make the product and, and packing it into the bags and all that kind of stuff. So we had a couple of partners as we grew, but it, many people, when they grow, if you were to make your, your brand new, you know, axle salsa, and you gave me some of that chimichurri here, like I can name 10 people within 150 miles of here that can make that next Friday for you, right? You just name the jar size and the ingredients and we're ready to go because that industry of taking liquid products, um, mixing them in a certain way and filling them through a filler, uh, jarring them with a capper and putting a label on with a labeler and then putting it into a box is like old as the country, right? Like You make it sound so simple. Yeah. <laughs> I know the chimichurri's <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but, the, but, but I guess... The, anyone can do that. We had to buy our own equipment whenever we scale. Yes. And we're yeah. talking about $500,000 dehydrators. Yeah. So typically when you're raising capital, you're raising capital for growth capital. We were raising capital for assets. And yeah. that's, that's not the easiest professional investment dollars to get. Um, you know, cause, but because kale was exploding, we, we were chasing it always. We always wanted to make sure we weren't going to buy a new capacity to double it before we knew we had retailers saying it. But like once the retailers said, yes, we needed that product in three months or four months. So, you know, there was a whole rockiness of until we finally got like four or five uh, dehydrators where we couldn't like grow without a bump. Yeah. And now, now, was that so that that extreme focus in production, do you think that's across the board with all high velocity products or was it because you guys were doing kale chips and the Kardashians were talking about it and everybody wanted kale? If you like, or a mixture of both. No, it's right? like on the high velocity. If you were if, Axel's new energy bar, right? So the new energy bar is an extruded product that gets mixed in a big Hobart, dumped into a forming machine or extruded and put onto a flow wrapping wrapping machine. If if that company that is making those bars for you can do your month's worth of production in one day, it's not hard for them to triple it by just doing two days of production. So the equipment is there. They're ready to scale. They just have to add labor. For us, it was really the equipment. Mm -hmm. It's very, you know, $500,000 dehydrators, six months lead time to buy those. You better, you know, if you're going to buy one, you better have the, uh, you know, you better have the, uh, the retailers that are saying yes, mm -hmm. otherwise you've just spent a shitload of money um, and this thing is sitting there idle. So that was the, the balance. Like it wasn't an unlimited pool of money ready to just buy as much equipment as yeah. we wanted. And then when you guys um, 
obviously when everyone's eating kale, that's very helpful to your brand. But was there other methods that you guys focused on to increase a high velocity item? And is it different with low velocity items? Or if, because I consider my sauces low velocity and I my goal is to make them high velocity. But again, people use my jar of chimichurri three or four times versus a bag of chips. Uh, people, it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. So this is just opinion, not fact. But to just answer one more thing from your previous question. So we had that high velocity when the demand was there and we were darn near the only guys making the kale chips or could do it. But shortly thereafter, a couple of sizable competitors popped up on the East Coast and West Coast. When we were the only guys on the shelf, we were incredibly high velocity. You couldn't believe the turns that we were having. And we couldn't keep up because the kale chip was this hero and we were the only ones making enough to sell. But all of a sudden there was two other brands on the shelf. So now they have a choice for it. So the velocities went down because of competition. The category kept growing, um, but for us, the velocity went down. We kept growing because we we're getting into more stores, but so that velocity can be, when you have something unique, that in and of itself can can drive velocity. There's probably not, and when you go to a condiment section, there's probably not seven versions of chimichurri, right? There's probably two, um, because it's not a massive category. It's not used a lot, um, like a, you know, A1 steak sauce. Both oh, yeah. are going on beef, but uh, the A1 steak sauce has been around forever, and it's like $1.99 for eight ounces instead of something that's more expensive. $9. $9, yeah. Ounces. <laughs> but so velocity to me, in particular, when you're a small company, it, it's hard to drive consumers to do what they're already not doing. And as a as a you know a smaller company that doesn't have the ability to educate on a grand scale, you got to do things on a less than grand scale. That's like demoing at a lot of stores. So if you're in 30 stores in Austin. Do two four-hour demos at two different stores that are close to each other on a Saturday and a Sunday. So you've just knocked off four stores. Go back the next week and switch the date uh, and do the same stores again because people pattern their their grocery shopping. So if you were at HEB 153 on one day uh, on a Saturday morning, you went to Whole Foods number 69 on the afternoon. If you flip those, you'll have a different type of person. And and then all of a sudden, you've maybe met 20% of their entire shopping group on a very, very busy day. And if you've converted 30 to 60 people to try your stuff and buy it because you're there and having them taste it, that little circle of five miles around that store or whatever the, the ge- geographic you know circle is for that particular store, you now have a neighborhood of people that are committed to your product. So it's it's worth it. Like each person that you touch and they buy it, if they like it, it better be good. If they don't like it, they won't. But particularly you in particular, if your name's on the package and you're actually sitting there doing it. So do a couple hundred of those uh, over the next two years and you will see the velocity grow. Yeah. That's one sure thing for sure. Paying other people to do it is expensive, and there's the balance of am I getting the growth and the revenue by spending $160 for someone to be in that store for four hours, or is it worth my time for at least a couple hundred of it? Like, 
I'm older than you, so a little bit. Yeah, uh, I've got two young boys at home and a wife that wants to see me more. I think so. <laughs> Saturdays and Sundays are precious, so I can't do that. But like that's what we did. I did 300 demos in the first three years that we had stubs, and they were anywhere from Virginia to Tennessee to Florida to Texas to California. Um, and that I believe, like if you pick a store, say it's Publix, and they've got at the time 800 stores, you do a third of their stores, you don't do the small stores because there's hardly mu anything that you can do to pick up the velocity. You want to value your time there. So do their big heavyweight stores where there are a lot of people coming in. You've got three times the touch points at that store for the four hours than you do at one of their C locations. You do a third of their stores a couple of times, you've got the velocity chain wide now that now you like you can do promotions that matter. You can spend $15,000 to get an off shelf display and see if you can get more people to try your products. Yeah. There's a bunch of other ways of increasing velocity, but that that's the tried and true small person, small companies way of doing it before they get to where they have larger budgets. And that's the way we did it. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. And everyone who's been on the show says like the number one is you go and do the demos and you keep doing them and keep doing them. And even, even when you're making millions, you keep doing them because people want to connect with yeah. the people who started the brand. And find ways to do them more efficiently. Like you could be doing demos on Fox 7 News in the morning showing how to grill a steak. Uh, with chimichurri sauce for Father's Day, then all of a sudden, whatever their viewership is, 50, 100,000 people that night might see it. That's a demo, right? You're not at the store, but um, that's that, that becomes an efficient, more efficient demo because your time is now more valuable. Still get in the store. Uh, if you wander the stores and hang out in the stores, you learn more about consumers and how stores work and store directors and how they want to run their stores uh, than you can do by reading any book or listening to someone else. So you got to spend a little time in the stores, no matter how long the company is in business. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I'm, I'm sure when you guys were doing that with Stubbs or even the early stages of, of Rhythm, it's totally different now. And I, I didn't think of this in, until you just said that, but like going in front of whatever Fox News or whatever TV morning station, you do have a wider audience. But now we also have Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. So maybe making a 60 second video oh, yeah. of you making a steak with chimichurri sauce, paying $15 for it to hit 20,000, quote unquote users yeah that's awesome so there's like a, a lot of new ways to play around with it um okay and I, I know we're running running out of time but oh, too bad yeah i know this this is this is getting good i wanted to ask um two things first what was it helpful being in austin because could you have started those brands and have been as successful in a different city or state or did <clears throat> being in austin a super trendy hip place help and being in texas where everyone's always eating steak and meats help as well i think you know the authenticity of the Stubbs brand is was clearly we had to be in austin that's where stub was at the time and from had a barbecue restaurant uh previously there so we we the whole brand was authenticity. It was Stubbs' recipe. He demanded his face be on the label and the, the quotes on there, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a cook. It's, it was him. And we didn't mess with any of his recipes. And he was he was the guy. He was like the grandfather you never had. Um, and, and so that had to happen there. Um, I would say that the infrastructure of Austin at the time that we started it, there was no 
in, investor no one talked investor or any there was nothing like that going on there was no like the SKU accelerator program there wasn't the programs that are over at UT it wasn't so there was anything. no CPG no like there was scene? you know Michelangelo's um um, Italian uh, frozen foods uh, up in North Austin, but he had moved from San Diego. And we didn't know it. I mean, halfway through, you know, we met Clayton and Dave and we're like, oh, there's another, you know, group in Austin that's making tea. But um, as we got later into the sauce company, um, uh, and I personally believe it was a, a moment in time that was a catalyst, like in the 2008 kind of economic crisis, <clears throat> there was a lot of people from, let's just say the West Coast and East Coast that found Austin. Like, I don't know anyone's personal story, but I can't afford this house anymore in LA. This is ridiculous. I'm a chef and I'm doing this or, you know, we had a creative class of people that came from New York and from California and from other places that were like, this is cool and it's not expensive. And there's a great music scene and outdoor scene. And so the the imprimatur that Austin has and gives to like that class of people, it's like they flocked here. And then you start seeing like the food trucks and food cart stuff happening after that. That was in the early 2000s, late 90s when... I like you... uh, the 2008 when the, uh, the, the the big kind of... I mean, everything was cool before that, but yeah, 2008 yeah. was when the economic crisis hit. And we saw here in Austin massive people from California, mostly California, and, uh, and even in New York, I think it was the second biggest migration of folks that were just like... You know, they were chasing the dream but couldn't afford it and found this as a great place to come. And so not only food artistry, but but artists themselves, painters, sculptors, glass workers, yeah. all that kind of stuff helped to support, you know, before the Keep Austin Weird was hippies uh, for the most part and, and, you know, country western hippies, if you will. Um, but this class of people came in and suddenly it was a lot of people are starting businesses and food and beverage businesses. That's my, my belief is that was this turning point that happened. And there were people like um, us, like Eddie and John and myself and Clayton and David that had already like broken down the walls of how to do this. We didn't, you know, we didn't have a book that said this is the way you do it. We were accessible and kind and helpful. And if anyone wanted to come up to us and say, well, how'd you do it? What, what do you think about this? We, oh, well, this broker's good and that broker's not good. This retailer's going to charge you too much, so say no to that. So having some sages in the group here helped the younger people or the new entrepreneurs. And then you have this formalization of things like skew. Now we have yeah. uh, naturally Austin. Um, we've got, you know, uh, private equity that invests professionally course, yeah. in town. And so all that stuff creates an infrastructure that not everyone can take advantage of, but some can. And I mean, I meet people all the time. I'm like, how come I don't know you guys have been here for two years and you're doing this really cool thing? Did no one tell me? I'm, I got my own blinders on, but um, I, somehow that's what happened here in Austin. And it, it, everyone is willing to share. Of course. And I, I love that's that's one of the most beautiful parts about being Texan yeah. and being here in Austin. Everyone loves to share their information, their knowledge, their their support. So I think I guess in 100 years from now, when people are studying Texas, you guys are going to be the avant garde's, the hipster cowboys that kind of started the, the whole CPG trend here during the, the 08 crisis, which is <laughs> 
honestly a very cool story <laughs> now, now that you're telling me. Um, okay, la- lastly, I definitely wanted to ask this. Should every brand grow with an exit strategy in mind? Hmm. When, I, uh, when I saw that question that you had sent me, um, uh, it, was, it really uh, hit me hard because... Um, I could flip flop in every circumstance, right? Like there's being a part of the skew accelerator here in Austin, like for the first several years, you're like, you know, in the end, we're going to have a pitch day. It's hard to grow right now without capital. It doesn't mean you can't. um, But if a new idea happens, I I always use this expression, uh, the story to, to express what's happening out there in the marketplace. Like... Five or six years ago, I tasted my first bone broth, and I loved the product. And you know, it's got its own little story about what it does for you with collagen and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but they launched that product, and it was a frozen product. And then, you know, at a trade show, six months later, at the next trade show, there's another company, and then six months later, there's another brand. You would never see that happen when we started Stubbs. It was just, it was kind of a sleepy, you know, deal, the food industry. But because the financing is out there, it now escalates the competition so fast. And there's some really, really sharp entrepreneurs creating really delicious and good products with incredible packaging. So first mover, not always, but majority of the time that is financed the best um, in many of these newer categories particularly um, ends up winning because money oftentimes wins so there are certain things I look at and I go wow that's brand new and no one even knows about that but it's easy to make so unless you move fast someone else is going to catch up to you and uh I was talking to uh, the Siete um, founders maybe three or four months ago, and they, you know, they didn't have to raise a lot of money. They raised about the same amount of money as we did at Stubbs, but they have a lot of competition uh, out there trying to figure out because they you know, do hot sauces, Mexican yeah. style. But their chips sauces. have really taken off, and the the the, the uh, almond tortillas that they make it really t- took off. They've done national rollouts at Whole Foods, so, yeah, right, yeah. Um, but they had such a unique item, and it was able to be appropriately margined so that they didn't have to lose money for seven years to make it work. Like So sometimes you have these great bolts of lightning that come down that... Um, that uh, when they, they, they were a SKU graduate, and that's where I got to meet them and, and just so impressed with what they've done with their brand. But, like, I just use that as an example of, like, it's not every everyone has to go out and, and try to raise $20 million to win. Each, each, each one is a different story. And so um, you do owe your investors the respect that you're going to manage their money well, give them reporting on what you're doing, and try – with every ounce of your body to um, to give them money back at some point. So if you don't take a lot of that money, then you get to call the shots and grow it however slowly you, you want to grow it. Yeah. And I guess, should I mean, but should entrepreneurs or new founders say, okay, I want to grow this super fat, 
next three to five years and sell it at year five for this amount? Or is that totally silly to think? And you should be like, no, start something you believe in and that you never want to let go of. Oh, well, that yeah, the start something you believe in. There's no way to go through the battles that you have here. If, if the objective is to sell it, the heartache is way too hard. So you have to have some sort of like, mission that you're really, really into because no matter what, you're going to be running into a lot of brick walls and a lot of no's and problems and a recall or plant breaks down or every knock on wood on that one. Yeah. (laughs) Every retailer doesn't want your stuff or consumers hate it. Like there's all kinds of things, but you, you can also pivot and take a left and a right and a left and a right. So with all that heartache, just like any other startup, you better be in for the long haul because saying that, you know, I'm just going to do this and then we'll flip it in three to five years. First of all, it almost never happens. There are unicorns that defy that logic, but it almost never happens. So if you're going to be with and marry someone, you better like them a lot because you're going to be with it for a while, particularly if you take capital. Like you can't just like take the first no, you know, you've taken a million dollars of someone's money and like things didn't work out at first. And you're like, oh, well, sorry about that. Like, you know, this retailer said they're not going to bring it in. So I guess we're going to, you know, die. You know, that's an easy one. You can come come back six months later and there's 50 more retailers you can go to. But those kind of like slaps in the face are going to happen. And so if you don't have the internal, you know, gumption to like make things work and work and work and work, uh, the three to five year, this is what I'm going to do. You'll 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 turn around and, and get out of it in a year. Because yeah. the punches to the face are often. Um, yeah, and you got to have some sort of passion to, to take those punches. Yeah. Um, well, beautiful. I wish we had a whole nother hour to keep talking about this. Um, but is there is there anything you want to add? Any, any shout outs you want to give before we wrap up? Well, the, I think one other thing I would just say that's... That, that I get asked a lot from people is, should we make this stuff ourselves? Um, and that, just that closing thought, or, or should we have someone else make it? Like when I said, like the, every single product and every single company has a different storyline, and you know you can't believe like what the, you know the talking heads say and tell you you're supposed to do. You could be at a trade show and there's 20 different private equity guys coming by your booth and 10 of them say you should do it this way, 10 of them say do it the other way. So um, the, the decision to manufacture or have someone else make it is a very interesting one that there's not one way or the other that is is better it's each circumstance is different. And so um, there are things like you've got something really existentially like wonderful, like it's no one else can make it. Uh, You may not be able to patent it, but you don't want other people to know how you make it. So that may be worthwhile of, you know, how, how you go about making the stuff yourself. Um, There is an opportunity. So if you're making something that is easier to make where the equipment and the companies that contract packed out there are plentiful and they've already paid for all their assets. So every new piece of business that they get is, is just a variable piece of revenue for them that they can push across uh, just their overhead, which is very low. Those circumstances give you the ability to make something at someone else's place and still be able to make an adequate margin. But if you can't get the margin that you need with a contract packer and you think you can get that, the, the the amount that you need in margin to be a successful company by making it yourself, then don't be afraid to make it yourself. Yeah, that's 
again, a whole nother conversation that I can have with yeah. you. But um, no, the great, great words of wisdom, good advice. And, and for you guys listening out there, make sure to keep all that stuff in mind because like Scott said, there, there isn't a, a right way to do it. There's not like, oh, everyone must go through a co-packer because that's the way to do it. No, it's, it's what works for you, it sounds like. But yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate the conversation, Scott, and I'm glad you stopped by. And I hope uh, Rhythm Superfoods keeps growing at the high velocity that it, that it is. Great. Thanks. Appreciate being here. Thanks again, Scott, for stopping by. That conversation was great. I really did appreciate it. And I wish I could have slowed down time a little bit so we could have extended our talk. The Packing Taste team includes me, Axel Brave, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Thank you everyone at Founding Media for your support. If you all have been really enjoying the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. You know the drill. You can also follow along for some behind-the-scenes photos on social media at Packing Taste Podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening.